this week on the Back Table Podcast. The presence of different bacteria in the bladder at the time of surgery or before surgery could predict somebody's response to mid-urethral sling surgery. It was down to a, a couple different genera of bacteria that when present may potentially lead somebody to not respond as well to mid-urethral sling surgery. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. Hello, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast. Once again, this is Mark Hoffman, your host, and we have another great guest today, Dr. Ian Fields, who is an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology and the associate residency program director of OBGYN at Oregon Health and Science University. And he is going to t- teach me all about the microbiome. Dr. Fields, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and excited to talk about one of my favorite topics. One of your favorite topics. Well, yeah. Good, because I know little to nothing about the microbiome and I'm excited to learn to learn about it. Um, and Ian's okay. We talked about this a little bit before the show. We like to make sure. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, please call me Ian. So before we jump into the microbiome, tell tell our listeners about you, about as much as you want to share about where you're from, how you got into this business of being a, and you're a, you're a gynecologist. Uh, a Correct. Female reproductive medicine, uh, FPM, female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgeon. Every time go. I have to stop and think about it every time. And it's going to be changing soon anyway, so that's For, going to happen. Just to urogynecologist or something yeah, different? Yeah, urogynecology and, and pelvic reconstructive surgery. So. Oh, good. They simplified it to something totally complicated. <laughs> urogynecology is fine, though. Yeah. I think we just that go makes with that? the most sense. Because well, yes. they changed the journal title name, right? That's Yes, we did goodness. change the journal title name as well. So, Well, I'm a, a MIGS surgeon, which, again, is redundant, um, but... <laughs> Well, we need to fix that too, but that's for not, maybe for another show. So uh, yeah, so tell our listeners about you and uh, and then we'll jump into the microbiome. Sure thing. So I, short story, I guess, um, I was born and raised in El Paso, Texas and went to a super nerd high school. I left my original high school when I was 16 years old and did an accelerated program at the University of North Texas called the Texas Academy of Mathematics and Science. Oh, that's cool. In Denton, Texas. Yeah, it is pretty cool. I kind of was thinking maybe medicine was in my future. And so I thought, hey, why don't I get a two-year head start on this deal? So essentially went to college when I was 16 years old, did my first two years of college there, and then essentially graduated high school with two years of college credit and could go wherever I wanted. And my journey took me to Loyola University in Chicago where I finished my undergraduate degree. I got a bachelor's in biology, graduated college when I was 20 years old, and truly had no idea what I wanted to do. So the two years shaving off was, uh, it was great, I guess, but I still had no clue where my life was going to take me. And so I had been really interested in basic science research as an undergrad and had sort of dabbled in my summers and time off. But anyone who does basic science research knows that you really can't accomplish much in a short period of time. And so I took a job as a research technologist at Northwestern University at their undergraduate campus in Evanston. And I ended up working there in a 
molecular and cell biology lab for five years, which wow. was way longer than what I had anticipated <laughs> because I was trying to navigate whether I wanted to do basic science research or whether I was truly interested in clinical medicine. How did you make that decision? You know, it was it was tough. The job as a research technologist, you know, my boss was was wonderful. She really gave me the opportunity to dive headfirst into this stuff and to give me the opportunity to really be independent in the research that I was doing um, and really gave me the opportunity to publish some work while I was there. And so in the five year time that I was there, published three studies all about, you know, mechanisms of cell polarity, perhaps way less interesting than the human microbiome but really gave me the opportunity to see what it would be like to have a career as a PhD. And I ended up applying both to MD and PhD programs. And I really missed the human interaction portion of things. I mean, I think that for me, medicine has always been about the ability to connect with people and the ability to be a part of people's stories and a part of their lives and, and giving them back quality of life, which is what I do now as a urogynecologist. And so I missed a lot of that and so decided, you know, med school was going to be for me. I went to Loyola University Stritch School of Medicine to obtain my MD and then met some pretty good urogynecologists there, I bet. You know, it's so interesting that you mentioned that because as a medical student, I had no, that was certainly not what, it was the only medical school I got into and that, you know, we can talk about my journey to and through medicine. I got into one med school too, so yeah. here we and, are. And see, it works, right? I mean, I, I feel like everything in life all the struggles and all of the ups and downs have totally led me to exactly where I, I am today. Well, that's a huge part of why I wanted to do a show like this. Every time I sit down with somebody who, and I won't name names so I don't get in trouble, but like these, you know, medical luminaries, the people we put on pedestals um, and people I admire, like people like you that I think a lot of us go, well, how, man, how did they get there? How did they must have just been born and created this brilliant, talented, whatever. And every single time without fail, there's oh yeah, this was not how I planned or this was not what I was going to do. And I met this one person who changed my life or whatever. There's always more to the story. And to me, that's a huge part of what kept me going when I was struggling, you know, at certain parts of my career or in med school, or whatever. You meet someone who goes, yeah, you want to tell me, want me to tell you about struggle? And you go, oh, okay, well, this person's pretty great. Um, and so, no, I think there's a lot of those stories. So you were at Loyola and you were going there just to become a urogynecologist, I'm sure. I actually went to med school thinking I was going to be a pediatrician. So I had done all of my life. I did too. <laughs> I did all my volunteer work at the Children's Hospital in Chicago, the Lurie Children's Hospital. And I loved it. And I was like, this is totally what I want to do with my life. Med school taught me differently. Uh, Loyola was great. And I mean, I, I really do think, you know, med school's tough, right? I think it was a really like formative time in my life. But I, I will say the people that I met at Loyola, the teachers that I had, the physicians I worked with, I would 100% do it all over again if I had to, just because Loyola was just amazing. And not just because I did get the chance to work with some of the biggest names in urogynecology. Who was there when you were there? Kim Kenton was there, Beth Miller, Linda Brubaker. So I interviewed for a mix job there and they took Linda Yang, which was a much better choice uh, than uh, me because yes. she'd been out for a little bit. I mean, she's I worked with her as a medical student and yeah. now she's at she's at Northwestern That's right, right now, which is where Kim Kenton went off to. That's right. And Maggie Mueller was one of my yep. junior residents. Who oh, I how, think, how I cool. Because I did residency at the University of Chicago. And so I think yes. 
was her fellowship at Loyola and then moved to Northwestern? Is that what happened? Correct. So I worked with Maggie Mueller as a medical student and then again as a fellow because I ended up going to Northwestern for my obstetrics and gynecology residency. Yeah. And I had no idea that Kim Kenton was going there and got to work with and learn from her. And, you know, I, I kept an open mind. I love, I, Interestingly enough, not one of the urogynecologists who's a, a super obstetrics downer. Like I, I loved obstetrics. I, I still think it's fascinating. I liked OB. I didn't do MIGS because I hated obstetrics. <laughs> right. I'm with you. Like I wanted to be a good surgeon. I, I also didn't know how that was going to happen in the time. And that's again a whole other podcast too, and how we train our our OBGYNs out there surgically. But yeah, I, I was either MFM or MIGS for me. I mean, I felt like it was wow. Um, I liked obstetrics, but I just, I liked things yeah. more. So those yeah. are two very different fields. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes and no. I did. But again, that's what, if you're curious about it, like we like women's yeah. health, we like OBGYN. Exactly. There's a lot of interesting stuff in this specialty for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I, <laughs> you know, I won the forceps award as a yeah. senior resident, <laughs> which I don't know if I should admit that <laughs> on this It's all podcast. your fault, all that prolapse. <laughs> but, uh, but I do have the award hanging in my office, in my academic office here at OHSU. And I think, you know, I think it's important. I think my viewpoint, like I approach things very differently, having that foundation and I really do think as a urogynecologist, having that OB background is, is super helpful. Um, cause I know you can come at it through the urology way, but I just think we have such a different perspective on things because we have a really great working knowledge of how things happen in labor delivery and all the sequelae afterwards. So, um, I wasn't a, an obstetrics hater and I really struggled with the fact that I was, I thought I was going to be a generalist and I really, really enjoyed the intricacy of surgery and pelvic reconstructive surgery. And the ability to give people back their quality of life, the onk part of things, you know, tugged at my heartstrings a little too much and I'm a little too emotional for that. So I had the exact same experience. That's funny. Like, I was like, oh, you should be an oncologist. I'm like, I, I'm not maybe emotionally mature enough to give what I think patients deserve and then also share that with the other people in my life. And exactly some people are just better at it. I just knowing myself, I felt like maybe there's not enough of me for this job. Absolutely. I totally agree. And so when it came time to apply for fellowship, I applied all over and then ended up out here in Portland, Oregon at OHSU and was lucky enough to weasel my way onto a faculty position uh, when I graduated in 2020 and even luckier to be able to weasel my way onto the residency uh, leadership team, which is probably one of my favorite parts of the job that I get to do. That's awesome. You know, when I came to Kentucky 10 years ago, there wasn't even, a, there was no division that I could go into. It was very much like, you know, I could have stayed in Ann Arbor, which I love more than anything I did my undergrad there. Yeah. But I wanted to build a program. Awesome. Um, but to sort of create the job that you want, you know, and like when you've gone somewhere, you just kind of like find the things you love. And over time, you can kind of create the position that you want, even if it may not be the one you were hired into. So that's great. So how do you like Portland? Um, I love it. Portland is it's definitely a slower pace of life than Chicago, for sure. You know, I lived in Chicago for 15 years prior to coming out here. The winters are much more bearable, although people that live in Portland will will complain about it nonstop. I just say, go spend a winter in Chicago and then come back and, and tell me this winter's not bearable. It's beautiful. There's tons to do. Like I said, people are great. It's a slower pace of life. And I truly do love my job and the people that I work with here. I mean, I think that's the thing that has really kept me here. It's a huge part of it. It really is. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm all for work is work and family is family, but I, I genuinely 
can say the thing about my job that I that brings me the most joy. And I love taking care of patients. I love surgery. But when I've got my team and my people that like are all rowing the boat in the same direction and are like, you know, happy to see me when I come there, like that makes all the other stuff easy. It makes everything else. It's hard enough being a doctor. It's hard enough doing what we do. Sure thing. Being a nurse, it's hard. I'd be an MA. But then we have a team that we're all like helping each other out. I mean, that is the the most valuable currency in this job, I think. Yeah, that's the thing that I tell the trainees that I work with the most is like, you know, good people and the team that you work with is like truly worth its weight in gold. And if you can find it, you should stick with it. Never let it go. Well, yeah. So uh, before we get a microbiome pizza, are you a deep dish pizza <laughs> person? I I'm, I, I could never get into it. It's like you lasagna. Know, I have my favorite when I go back to Chicago. It's Lou Malnati's all the way. I won't hear anything otherwise. But in the day to day, like, no, I I think it's, you know, one to two pieces. And then you're sitting, you know, in a food coma the rest of the night. Yeah, so, don't make plans after that. No, no plans after deep dish no. pizza. I like it no. at a time and place that's appropriate, but you know, it's not, it's not something I miss deeply. It should not re replace all pizzas. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm not, I guess I, I wouldn't be a true Chicagoan then, but that's okay. Forno Rosso was the place I went to most recently in Chicago. It was like wood-fired pizza. Over, oh, yes. Which was so, on Randolph is so good. But so good. Not I mean, dish. Chicago in general has amazing food. I do but, miss that. That's my wife is from a, a bigger city. And so the thing about Lexington, yeah. she's not as big a fan. And we have some good restaurants here. It's, it's getting much better, but it's yeah. not a big city. Not so, quite a big city. Yeah. No. And she reminds me not, not too infrequently <laughs> that this is not a big city, but yes. so the microbiome, talk to me about just for like, of course I know all about it, but for our listeners who may not <laughs> know everything there is to know about the microbiome, just like a general overview of what it is generally, and then we'll sort of work our way towards how that applies to what, what we do as OBGYNs and what you do as a urogynecologist. Yeah. So you can think about the microbiome as all of the things outside of our cells that make up our human body, right? You know, there's like trillions of cells that make up the human body, but there's some studies even suggest up to three times more organisms that are living all throughout your body, on your skin, in your gut, in your mouth, in your GU tract, everywhere that make up what's called the microbiome. So it it's comprised of everything else aside from what makes you you cell-wise. So bacteria, viruses, fungi, all types of things that that sort of help us function and that may play a role in how we as humans maintain states of health and also interestingly enough have large impacts in the pathophysiology or the development of disease states too so there's been a lot of research done you know over the last 10 20 years as it relates to the microbiome and if people are interested i encourage them to always start with the human microbiome project which um, was a large NIH study that really was like, how do we function in states of health? So it took all these healthy individuals, looked at the microbiome in five different sites of the body. So the nose, the mouth, the skin, the gut, and the vagina. And so it was essentially studying how do we as healthy people, what comprises our microbiome? We will put a link to this in our show notes. When is this from or when, when did this project start? Or is it is it an ongoing project? Is it like a, a book? It started, I want to say, 
back in, I want to say that the early 2000s is when it all started and and things have sort of trickled out since then. Um, it's one of a number of large microbiome studies, but yes, you can absolutely look it up, the NIH Human Microbiome Project. That's fascinating. I mean, we grew up like hand washing and then we had a white kitchen. We had three boys, a white kitchen, yeah. white floors, white chairs. My mom was like in the kitchen with her yellow rubber gloves. Everything got scrubbed no pets in the house and like was it was it too clean was there was there too much cleaning going on in our house and other people that you know they said having like a dog as a kid growing up like it allows you to like your immune system works better so it sounds like it's not just the microbiome the bugs but also how our immune system responds to that it seems like it's just a constant interplay is that yeah, right yeah or like in concert with it right so i think it's kind of a little bit of a symbiotic relationship there too the bacteria need some of the things that we give it we need some of the things that the bacteria give us. And so it's kind of how we function together, this like interplay and interconnectedness that potentially allow us to maintain this like homeostasis. And when things go awry, that's how we get to, you know, certain things that we as physicians may see clinically. So what are examples of situations where, because I think most, most people think, you know, bacteria means infection. Like there's, right you know, some bacteria we don't want, let's get rid of bacteria, right? Especially in gynecology, everybody has a, if there's a discharge, give me antibiotics to treat it. Well, it's, there's a lot of normal activity in the vagina. There's bacteria, fungus, you know, if we, if we hit one, the other can have an opportunity to overgrow. So that's one where we see the microbiome maybe more frequently in our clinics. But what are, what are examples of some big situations where the microbiome can impact or be related to disease processes? So I think one of the things that fascinated me the most when I was in medical school was studying and learning about clostridium infections in the gut, right? So we hear about C. diff after antibiotics, right? So there's a very large amount of work um, that was really done with the gut microbiome as perhaps one of the most studied microbial niches. And C. diff happens when after patients are typically after patients are treated with antibiotics for some other infection that antibiotics have some collateral damage elsewhere in the body and the gut is a big place that gets that collateral damage. And so at that point you develop, potentially develop this Clostridium difficile infection. And I thought, you know, you know, we treat it with antibiotics, but one of the other ways that we can treat this is by doing fecal transplants, which I thought was just like the most out there thing that I learned, I was like, oh, wait a second, you're telling me that they're taking stool from healthy people and like placing it in somebody's gut? I just thought that is so bizarre, but fascinating at the same time to me that somebody has thought about this. No, I think every time anyone hears that for the first time, they're like, there's always that like, oh, <laughs> come on. And then people, people want to learn more about, wait, I'm sorry, did you say transplant? Like who's Who's the donor? Who's got like the best stool out there? So we, How we do gotta, we, we, we got to bring in uh, this guy again because his patients are doing great. Like yeah. who's who's got and like how do you how does one maintain a kind of uh, feces that is desirable for transplant? Yeah. I mean, my goodness, like this is a whole other whole a whole other whole other thing that none of us know anything about. I mean, clearly there's there's a lot out there we don't know, right? 
I think that that was something that sort of just like blew my mind as a student that this is something that was happening. Was your interest was your, was your basic science research in uh, the microbiome or what was? It was not. Yeah, I studied mechanisms of cell polarity and like polarized epithelial cells with broad implications for like renal cancers, and so I worked with kidney cell lines and did lots of like, okay, how do how do cells decide that they're going to grow in the way that they do? And so once we learn kind of baseline how they function, then we would knock out functions of certain proteins that we were studying to see how that had an impact on these mechanisms of how cells grow the way that they do. So, so not a direct line, but as an English major, I'm definitely thinking, okay, this, this is all way above my pay grade. Um, so clearly an advanced level of understanding of cell biology, which allows you to be far more in tune with what's going on in the microbiome. So in gynecology, what what do we know? What are what are the areas of work that's being done and what's the future hold for our better understanding of the microbiome? That is a great question. Most of the work in terms of what we see clinically as gynecologists, urogynecologists is the shift in in homeostasis that happens with the healthy bacteria that live inside the vagina that lead to things like bacterial vaginosis. I think that's probably the most studied condition in terms of how it relates to the microbiome in our world. But, you know, as a urogynecologist, I have specific interest in urinary tract disorders like incontinence, both stress incontinence, urgency urinary incontinence, recurrent urinary tract infections, and conditions like interstitial cystitis and painful bladder, and all have implications in terms of studies that have linked alterations in the microbiome in the bladder to those different conditions. And it's, it's really funny because going back to this, a lot of this work about the urinary microbiome also came out of Loyola University, which just, again, so interesting that my life has taken me down this path and I've ha I have so much crosstalk and interplay with the people that have done this research, although I, I have not worked on it there myself. So in recurrent UTI, I was trying to think about, you know, in preparing for the show today, like things that I would have thought would be impacted by the microbiome within the, the urinary tract specifically. But so pelvic organ prolapse, or, or, is that what you said? Or, or like things like interstitial cystitis, which as a, as a pelvic pain person, I see a lot. But the other conditions you're mentioning too, I wouldn't have thought the microbiome would play as much of a, a role. So can you talk about the ways that the microbiome could or does or could potentially impact those different disease processes. Yeah, I guess the first thing that we have to, we'll backtrack just a little bit here because I guess the first thing we have to realize is we, we have to challenge this dogma that the urine or bladder is sterile. Yes, lots of, lots of Twitter chatter, I think, by some experts like you about whether or not people should be thinking it's sterile. I won't go any maybe further than that. Yes. There's a lot that you can get into on Twitter in terms of weird practices that they relate to medicine. But there was this, this was like a hot topic, I want to say a couple of months ago when Ashley Winter, who is a urologist, tweeted that urine was not sterile. And I mean, you would have thought, you know, this is like flat earther territory again. People are just like attacking her saying, like, this is so dumb. Like, of course, the urine is sterile. How would you get a bladder infection if urine's not sterile to begin with? And I just, it takes so much of you to sit back and say, you know, this is, this is potentially not worth my fight right now in this forum specifically. <laughs> How much time do I have? How much energy do yeah. I have left for Correct. this for this conversation? And the answer is probably not enough. Yeah, most of the time, the answer is not enough to engage. So 
Although I did jump in and participate here and there, I was like, I don't really want to get into this and I don't really want to bring out the troll. And mute notifications. Yeah, mute notifications on this thread. No more, please. <laughs> but she she tweeted that urine was not sterile. And, and I think we know this at this point in time. I mean, I think we have really good evidence. And a lot of that work, again, came out of work that was done by microbiologists, immunologists at Loyola University, Alan Wolf and Paul Schreckenberger as well as Linda Brubaker when she was at Loyola, had done all this work to really challenge this dogma that the bladder is a sterile environment because the bladder was not included in the Human Microbiome Project. The vagina was, but the bladder was not. And so it's plausible, right? Like we as gynecologists know, and I think this is like such an interesting quote from Alan Wolf when he talks about the work that he's done says, it was ludicrous to me when I found out that medical students were learning that the bladder was sterile because the female urethra is just like a day trip for E. coli. Like it's really doesn't take much for it's three to four centimeters, right? E. coli is of course going to be able to climb in there. And that's how that's how we get these infections, right? That's how UTIs manifest is typically because of things like that and, and E. coli's motility. And so he thought, you know, there's got to be a way that we can study the bladder and figure out whether or not urine is sterile. And so one of the first studies he did was looking at voided specimens, uh, suprapubic aspirates, and urethral catheterized specimens to determine whether or not there was bacteria present. And he did this basically you can do this through a series of, you know, sequencing what you know is there based on the bacteria that you would expect. And so you sequence what's what's called part of the 16S ribosomal RNA. There's like variable regions that are pretty consistent throughout, like evolutionarily that you can find and sequence, even if bacteria, to see if bacteria are there. And he essentially was able to show that, yes, there is a large community of bacteria that lives in the bladder in healthy patients and healthy subjects. It makes me think about, because I'm a big fan of science and space travel and those things. How do you know if you go to Mars, if there's life, if you've, if you've touched all this equipment and you send it there, right? So that's a huge part of that whole science of, of studying uh, whether or not there is evidence of life in in places where we didn't expect it. And this is it, it sounds actually very familiar or similar because if you're going through a catheterized sample or going through the skin into the bladder, like you could potentially be bringing things in. And so that's where you have to have people who know what they're doing, who understand what's what to expect and compare it. But I can see how it would be that would be really challenging work to do because to get into the bladder to see if there's bacteria, you were going through all these bacteria-rich microbiomes to get there. Yeah, you can only be, you know, that's why this midstream voided specimen that we use to figure out if a patient has a UTI is catching all of this, all of the skin from the vulva and the vagina, right? So we, we can't know for sure. I feel like every UT, every urine culture I get is molly, by, by, you know, Polymicrobial. Um, polymicrobial. <laughs> I feel like, like that's this. what you're going for. Mo yes, poly thank you for, for polymicrobial. Yeah. yeah, and it's like, what do I, what do I do with that? Nothing is what yeah. I've been usually doing with it. But yeah, I mean, it's everywhere. So how do you know uh, what's what? So no, that that sounds really challenging. It is, and so you know, he then took that a step further, right? Because you can say, okay, so great, you have presence of bacteria that are there based on these like genetic sequencing that you've done. That means you could have dead bacteria that were anywhere. Like, how do you know that these bacteria are alive and they're healthy? So he was like, all right, well, let's just take this a step further. 
And so he challenged the standard urine culture, right? So basically took a cohort of patients who were healthy controls and patients with urinary incontinence and had their urine plated under standard aerobic conditions at 35 degrees Celsius, grew for 24 hours, did it grow or did it not, but then took those same samples and grew them under a variety of different conditions, different culture mediums, anaerobic conditions, different temperatures, longer periods of time, and was able to show that over 90% of people who had been a part of this study, you could cultivate bacteria that way from the bladder, which was just this huge paradigm shift. And who's the one doing the work? Whose work are you referencing? And when was all this research done? So this was done back in 2012 and 2014. This is the team at Loyola University, you know, the two PIs on the study, Alan Wolf and Paul Schreckenberger. That's pretty recent, though. I mean, that's like it is in like (laughs) the scheme of like medical research, like things like basic stuff we know about the human body, like 10 years is not that long. I remember being at the American Urogynecological Society meeting at the time when these papers were presented and just like my mind was blown. I was like, this is so far beyond anything that I could comprehend as a student, as a resident. It just was mind blowing to me. Was it taught in med school prior to this that urine was sterile? Was that like, (laughs) I think so. (laughs) I feel like that's what I'm like trying to be cool. Like I know stuff. I'm like. I think I maybe thought urine was sterile too. Like, I don't like that's, yeah, I've, you know, I've been out of, I've been out of training for 10 years and I don't deal with the urinary tract. At least I try not to be, to deal with it very often um, (laughs) in my, in my job. If we can avoid it. If we can avoid it. Right. Um, I'm trying to sound like I know what I'm talking about, but like, I get, I feel like that's what we were taught, like that it was, yeah. it was sterile. And like, I believe so, despite me being at Loyola, I'm pretty sure that's what I was taught. And Alan Wolf was one of my microbiology teachers. So I hope he doesn't come after me after this, but I, I'm pretty sure at that, I mean, I was in medical school around like 2009, 2010 is when I would have been learning. Well, if you used a textbook, it was probably written in like the eighties anyway. I mean, th- that's the thing. It's this information typically happens or progresses pretty slowly, or at least it's delivered pretty slowly. And so, so this, yeah, this is kind of like a, a big thing to think about. And so all the things that we don't know about that you're talking about, like especially interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome that we that we see a lot in our endometriosis patients, recurrent UTIs, like at some point you just go, I don't know what to, what to do with that. Um, so can you talk a little bit about specific diseases or we, we had to back up? Did, did you get caught up enough? I don't want to. No, that's yeah, that's it's like I feel like we're caught up enough to where we should be. OK, good. I feel like I understand more now, so I appreciate that. Yeah, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. So we've at least established that urine, not sterile. Not sterile. Right. Okay. okay. And I'm sure Great. we'll just we'll turn off our notifications when people hear this one, too. Oh, goodness. What are ways that we think the microbiome is impacting disease processes in, 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 in the urinary tracts of our patients? So a lot of work has really been done specifically in urinary incontinence. So both the types of incontinence that I see as a urogynecologist, stress incontinence, which is leakage of urine that happens with activities like cough, laugh, sneeze, exercise, things like that, and urgency urinary incontinence, which is really a lot well less understood how that happens. I mean, I think we can see how stress incontinence happens typically because of pregnancy, childbirth, you lose support of the urethra, therefore activities that increase intra-abdominal pressure like cough, laugh, and sneeze could potentially lead to loss of urine involuntarily. But that seems like more of a, of like a functional thing, right? Like when you said you thought the microbiome had a role. Right. 
with stress incontinence, I was like, I thought we understood that. I thought we like, because yeah. it was pelvic floor stuff. And now you're saying there's like more to the story. There is, there is. And so, you know, when we think of stress incontinence specifically, a lot of the work has been done about response to surgery. And there was this large trial um, that was just presented and published, I believe, in the Gray Journal um, within the last year or so showing that the presence of different bacteria in the bladder at the time of surgery or before surgery could predict somebody's response to mid-urethral sling surgery. It was down to a, a couple different genera of bacteria that when present may potentially lead somebody to not respond as well to mid-urethral sling surgery. That seems crazy. We don't yeah. know why that is yet. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's just fascinating to me, you know, especially, you know, on the flip side of things, when we look at urge incontinence, we don't know why people get it, right? That's the hardest thing for me to say is, you know, people always want to know, well, why, why do I have urge incontinence? Why, when I get the urge to go to the bathroom, why can't I make it to the toilet on time? The answer is we really don't know. The prevailing theory is that it's a way that the nerves in your body communicate with your bladder muscle. And I always tell people the way we are designed to urinate is one of the most neurologically complex things that we do as humans, but we just don't think about it. A neurosurgeon that I worked with as a med student, like that was like his thesis. He just showed me like a map of the micturation pathway. And I was like, that seems unnecessarily <laughs> complicated, but like you got to it know it's there, but you don't want to pee just yet. And you got to like be right. allowed to pee, but you also got to control not peeing. And there's just all of these. Yeah. Things going back and forth between your brain and your bladder and your pelvic floor muscles all in concert. It's a miracle. Any of us are walking around dry, honestly. That's very true. You know, it's again, it's always a, a thorn in the side of the fellows that we train that learning that pathway and committing it to memory is is really, really difficult. And it's, I think, one of the hardest things that we learn as fellows. But, you know, there's a huge body of work showing that there are disturbances in the urinary microbiome, tangible disturbances that are linked to urge incontinence. I think that's one of the largest bodies of work that we have is to show that alterations in that urinary microbiome may be more profound in somebody that has urge incontinence versus somebody that doesn't. It's fascinating. I'm just thinking about like endometriosis, right? Like there's right. all this stuff we don't know. I just finished reading The Andromeda Strain. I don't know if you've ever read that before. Like, gosh, gosh, maybe when I was in middle school, I think. Well, I'm a little, maybe. little delayed. Maybe yeah. that was. <laughs> well, no, we're at a used bookstore and like with my son. And I was like, oh, you know, I never That's a great book. read that. It's great. But like, how do you look for things you don't know even where to begin? Right. But yeah, like, I mean, I'm trying to think of other, uh, other examples of that. But like heartburn, you know, is one of those things we just assumed. But then turns out there's like a bacteria involved that shouldn't be there. Maybe is that? more of an infection versus microbiome or is that a disturbance to the microbiome like i don't what's what's the difference like is that an example of yeah i think that's probably more an example of an infectious process that needs to be treated with antibiotics versus you know we don't fully understand just because these bacteria are there i think this is the link that we're still waiting to uncover which is why there's so much work to be done in this arena because just because we know the bacteria are there people are like well so what what does that mean now how do we use this information Right. Which of those bacteria are supposed to be there? Which of those bacteria may be causing the problem? Right. Or all, which a, a lack of what bacteria is allowing this problem to happen. So it seems like there's a lot left to learn and a lot more to understand. And so as a basic scientist, how much of your job now is actually involving basic science re research 
any of it? None of it at this point in time. I did a lot more. Yet. None, none yet. None yet. Yeah, I did. This was the focus of my fellowship thesis project was the microbiome. Did you do basic science research and fellowship as well or just uh, working with basic scientists? I was mostly working with basic scientists, although I did spend some time in the lab. I was there was a component of the project that I wanted to I wanted to do a basic science component in conjunction to the microbiome piece but wasn't able to wasn't able to get that off the ground unfortunately the collaborator who I I worked with unexpectedly passed away during the time that I was in my fellowship and so didn't get the chance to to fully delve into that work like I had wanted to yeah and and so when you go to a new place and that's unfortunate but when you go to a new place then it's, you got to meet everybody again right and, you know, you'll, that's again, we talked about how people end up where they are. Like you just bump into somebody and go, oh, hey. And then it turns out your career goes sideways from there, a totally different direction. But the challenges of being a basic, does it frustrate you at all? Or is it something you want to keep doing? Because I'm, I am not a basic scientist. I mean, that's just, I was math science in high school and I got to college and I was like, I just, I think I've done enough math. I'm terrible at reading books. I was really bad at writing. And so I figured if I'll, I'll become an English major just to like, learn how to write and learn how to read more critically. And I was glad I did it. It wasn't right. I wasn't good at it, but I never felt comfortable in the lab. I never felt like that was something I understood well. But for someone like you, who clearly is, that's like your wheelhouse. As a physician now, you know, we, we always think about the physician scientist model. I think we hear a lot about it, that it's going away. It's just, there's, you know, RVUs and, you know, clinical productivities and academic demands. Like there's just not an opportunity to do that in the same way that there was. Do you feel like that's true? Do you feel like there's opportunities out there for physicians like you who are clearly good at doing that stuff, like to, to continue doing that and also be a busy surgeon? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think that there's absolutely room for people like that. You know, for me... On my career trajectory, I see more in the education arena with the work that I do with the residency program and the work that I do with medical students. But I think my brain is hardwired as a basic scientist to think about a lot of these things. And so it's helpful sometimes in the clinical setting, right, you know, to be able to break it down for patients who want more answers to what they're doing. You know, like I prescribe vaginal estrogen all the time. In my clinic, you can ask any medical student or resident. That's like one of the things that I want them to take away from their time with me, no matter how short or long they rotate in my clinic, is that vaginal estrogen is safe and it's effective, especially when we think about things like recurrent UTI and genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And so it's one of those things where patients ask me, well, like, how does this work? And I'm like, oh, well, this works. You know, we know already that vaginal estrogen works to increase collagen production in the cells that line the vagina and it increases thickness and that thickness, you know, you increase lubrication, which helps dryness and helps decrease the ability of bacteria to like climb up and be mobile and, and get into the bladder. But it also has the added effect that vaginal estrogen, we know now, completely changes the microbiome of the vagina and the bladder. We talk a lot about good bacteria in the vagina, like lactobacillus, right? I think everyone knows, lacto hopefully many people know, lactobacillus is always thought of as a good bacteria. And we know, based on a lot of the work that we've done, that when you treat somebody that has gone through menopause with vaginal estrogen therapy, you can bring back in lactobacillus to dominate their microbiome. So they thus have a less diverse microbiome because it's dominated by lactobacillus. And we know that lactobacillus makes the environment in the vagina more acidic and therefore makes it harder for these like uropathogens we think of, right? Like 
E. coli and Klebsiella to grow and therefore cause problems. And so there's that's a frequent thing that I talk about in my clinic because my patients want to know how this is going to work. And I say, how do I know this? It's because I've studied it myself, right? And so I think it gives credence a little bit to the therapies that we're using to let people know that like, no, I'm not just BSing you on this. Like, I know how this works and I do think it's going to benefit you. And so that's a really long-winded answer to your pretty simple question. Yes, I think there's a lot of room for physician scientists. And I think there are many in my field, you know, I was just lucky enough to work with one of the PhDs in our department, Dr. Lisa Karstens, who's done a lot of this work here at OHSU. And so her interest in the microbiome and my clinical work just linked up beautifully to be able to do that fellowship project. And, um, you know, if I had more time and more energy, that's always the currency that I need more of uh, that I can't seem to find. I would love to continue to do a lot of that work here. And I think there's absolutely a way for people to do that if that's really where their interest lies. Well, you're very earlier in your career and to have done that much in your career this time is is always super impressive. And I'm sure you'll you'll find an opportunity at some point to follow those things that you're curious about, which I say again and again, I think curiosity is by far the most powerful force, at least it certainly is for me. And like passion wears out. Curiosity is what keeps you up at night and keep, you know, gets you up in the morning to try to read something, find something out. And so being curious sounds like you're a very curious person. What do you think? And so the vaginal estrogen thing, I mean, again, it's funny how like social media can make oh, yeah. such an impact among among providers, not even patients, right? Like that's one of the things I watch those conversations happen on Twitter and like people are like, hey, by the way, now I use it every day. Like there's patients across the country being <laughs> treated for, with vaginal estrogen because of what they read on social media and the power of that particular platform to educate people and to educate Physicians, like we, we're supposed to know it all already. That's what med school is for, except that, yes, you and I both know that we learn a certain amount of things and things change and you got to keep learning and it's exhausting and the medicine changes. And there's only so much that stays in your noggin, right? Some of that stuff just like leaves at some point. And also some of the stuff that stays is like no longer practiced anymore. Right. That's why I keep <laughs> certain apps on my phone with algorithms because I'm like, they could change it tomorrow. And if I right. commit it to memory, I've now committed the wrong algorithm to memory. I might as well just know what resources I can trust to be up to date. The CDC website for management of STIs, right? Like they're updating that on, they're the ones who will know if I need to do something differently. If I try to memorize it, it may not be, may not be current, may, may, may not be right. So what are other areas where the microbiome is like where people are looking at it in, in our other, other disease processes? What are other areas where you think maybe we, w we wouldn't expect the microbiome to be impacting our patients in a way? Like as it relates to us as OBGYN? Or just at all. I mean, again, I'm fascinated by this idea that there's all these different populations of organisms living everywhere that we just, we're just barely chipping into the surface of this stuff. I mean, I think it's just all of it. It's like fascinating. Like it goes to, you know, preterm birth has been linked to changes in the microbiome. Uh, like I said, interstitial cystitis, painful bladder, urinary incontinence, bacterial vaginosis, you know, even the difference in the neonate microbiome versus when somebody is born via spontaneous vaginal birth or C-section, right? Like they're colonized immediately with different bacteria and those that colonization potentially can lead to different things like asthma, allergies, things like that that you just don't think of, you know, like inflammatory bowel disease, heart disease. I was at a talk the other day about like links 
between the microbiome and like childhood epilepsy because of the way that a gut bacteria can metabolize certain foods in the diet that create these byproducts that can trigger an epileptic state in the brain. Like That's crazy. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. Truthfully, though, it's like, you know what? I give up. It's too much. All right, nature, you win. Yeah. There's just too much. There's just too much out there. I mean, it's it is it is it is overwhelming, I think, to think about all those possible ways that it's all impacted. But the big thing that I feel like is having it. And so I'm in Kentucky, eastern Kentucky, certainly an area that is underserved. And I think about environmental impact. And so we have, you know, people we work with here looking at some of the environmental impacts of living in areas where they, you know, they've done significant amounts of mining or those kinds of things. And we think about the, you know, toxic potential, but I, I imagine the microbiome is significantly impacted by diet or other environmental, env environmental aspects. How does the environment impact microbiomes in a way? Is it, and is it shifting? Is it, is it something that's changing with diet and those things? You know, I think a lot of work has shown that it does, right? I mean, you can have different, <laughs> people can have different microbiomes based on where they live. Like moving could change your microbiome? Yeah, moving could absolutely change your microbiome. That's like totally very well established that those things like even in the day to day in your life can change your microbiome. Like we some studies have shown, you know, even women who or I should say people who menstruate can have different microbiomes based on the day in their menstrual cycle, right? Like, I think that that's, they can come down to like little things like that. It's just, there's so much that can influence it that absolutely like environment, you know, certainly can play a role in the establishment maintenance disturbances in your microbiome and therefore like what may, I mean, I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface on a lot of this. Like forget who's got the best pizza. Now we have to figure out who's got the, which, which, which city has the healthiest microbiome. That's, that's where you want to know. I'm going to move to. Hopefully it's a sunny place. <laughs> exactly. It is uh, North Alaska. Oh, great. <laughs> it's not Hawaii, not like on a beach somewhere in Hawaii. No. It, it, you know it won't be. It's, it's going to be, be someplace Alaska. that's really dark and cold. Yeah, dark for two months of the year. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, yeah. well, you've certainly like sparked my curiosity and all this stuff. And now I'm like, it's one of those things that once you know a little bit about it, once you sort of get the idea that, oh, wait, this is probably impacting a lot of things. And again, I deal with fibroids, endometriosis, chronic pelvic pain, a lot of these disease processes where we tell patients, you know, I don't really, we don't really know where this starts. We don't really know how this happens. Well, we, we now know at least a new lead uh, to try to figure this out. Maybe, the, you know, does the microbiome, you know, because the fallopian tubes, things leak out, right? There's, we, we talk about retrograde menstruation. Well, there's bacteria in the vagina, possibly in the uterus. Likely, is the, is the uterus a microbiome? I mean, I imagine Probably. Yes, I it would must there must be. I don't th I don't know of any off the top of my head, but I imagine that there must be given the fact that you can have endometritis. Right. I, it certainly is plausible that you can have something that potentially um, helps maintain homeostasis in in the uterine. If we're talking about and, you know, the urethra and, you know, how E. coli can travel, that's a day trip. Right. I mean, I think if the bacteria, if the vagina has its own 
microbiome and the cervix is only a few centimeters long, what, six, four, six centimeters long on average. And right. people are menstruating, you know, about every month. So clearly there's some, some connection between the uterus and the vagina. And right. I would imagine there would have to be. And like, this is all of a sudden now I'm thinking, well, then there must be connection with intraperitoneal cavity and the Right. Is there a microbiome? I mean, again, we think of the abdominal cavities being sterile. Is it? Is there a microbiome there? You bring up a good point. And I, again, I don't know of anything off the top of my head that anybody that has studied like peritoneal fluid, that would be just, you know, if you have a resident or a fellow who's chomping at the bit for something, again, like the microbiome. And it sounds like one of your residents as opposed to one of mine. You're the expert. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so fascinating. And again, like we think, especially with the work that you do, you know, with endometriosis and fibroids, like it's woefully underfunded, woefully understudied because it's underfunded. And like, there's so much that we have. It's not understood, right? It's like, correct. Yes. We don't know. It is frustrating to tell patients, you know, I just don't know. And my wife is not in medicine, but she's brilliant and reads like, you know, anytime anything comes up, she's pulling out journal articles and I'm like, where did you, where do you find this? But, (laughs) but, you know, she likes to know an answer and she does not like it when doctors say, you know, I don't know how this happened or I think it's the hardest thing that we do as physicians sometimes is telling people we don't know no and it's hard to do and i don't think we're taught to do that well i think i'm pretty good at it i'm i'm, I'm happy to be honest that's transparency i can't promise same anything but honesty and transparency to my patients but yeah I, we don't know and it sounds like if we're if these old models of how endometriosis or of how we think endometriosis started have let us basically know where maybe this is the next frontier so yeah you've got you got my wheels spinning yeah, you have my wheels spinning too. Now I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, endometriosis and peritone. I'm thinking peritoneal fluid, right? Like that's got to be, it can't be that stare. No, not something that communicate. Hey, now you, again, you have my wheels turning as well. Well, your wheels spinning are much more likely to produce valuable research than mine. So if we've gotten someone wheel spinning, that's good news. And <laughs> You're so, too kind. <laughs> well, hey, listen, I'm the, the good thing about this show is I get to bring on brilliant, thoughtful, intelligent experts, and we get to let other people in on these little conversations that we have at a bar or a coffee shop. And now everybody gets to listen in. And so these fun little conversations that we have, hopefully others will get their wheels spinning and maybe somebody will come up with a an answer for us because yes. I have no idea. I'm so glad you were able to join us today. I know you're very busy. I know you have a lot going on, um, but I also know that this is something that I know very little about and I'm super curious about. And I think our listeners will also uh, enjoy uh, the opportunity to learn a little bit today. So thank you so much for joining us on Backtable OBGYN. And uh, and hopefully we get to meet in real life at some point soon. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It's just a pleasure to talk about this stuff and, and get other people's wheels spinning and just to, to be a guest on your show. So thanks for thinking of me. Thanks for the invitation. And yes, let's do this over a beer or coffee in real life at some point when we can meet face to face. All right. It's a, it's a deal. Wonderful. Awesome. S- such a fun time. Well, thanks again and have a great uh, holiday. Yeah, you as well, Mark. You take care. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable OBGYN on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable OBGYN is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman. And Amy Park. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess, 
and Yvonne Ogrodzinski. Show notes and social media by Jody Lenora. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kennebrew. Music written and performed by Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.